is Dave Gans, Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs at the Medical Group Management Association. Today, I have the opportunity to talk to Anders Gilbert, Senior Vice President for Government Affairs for MGMA. Anders, of course, has the opportunity to lead MGMA's Government Affairs Department and to lead our advocacy efforts on behalf of the association. Today, we're going to talk about what is happening in healthcare in the perspective of healthcare policy and regulation, and what can medical groups anticipate happening in 2019, and address some of the things that he thinks are key issues affecting healthcare practices. Okay, Dave, and thanks for having me on the podcast. As many of you know, uh, MGMA has a government affairs department in Washington, D.C. We have eight staff, and we're here to uh, both advocate on behalf of our members and for medical group practices and their leaders. You know, 2019, I think it has the potential to be have a lot of issues raised in some ways. I expect regulations to be more prevalent than any major new healthcare laws or legislative proposals from Congress. We're going to be going into the first part of a presidential election. And so we'll see a lot of vigorous debate, but I'm not sure we're going to get a whole lot done on the legislative side. That said, the type of thing that really affects our members where the rubber hits the road is on the regulatory side. And many of the things that Dave, you and I will talk about today will be coming down through the regulatory process and could very much directly impact uh, those of us in the medical practice field. Good. Anders, I think your excellent comment. I mean, even legislation, once passed, does not affect uh, many organizations, but once it's been promulgated into into regulation, that is what happens. So there's an important element of looking at the regulation and, and how it is implementing past legislation. So let's talk about a couple of specific topics. First, since Payment is so critical to both practices and, of course, the federal government is looking at how does Medicare potentially spend less money and improve the product uh, that is paying for that CMS has for several years now had a voluntary Medicare alternative payment model program. You want to talk a little bit what is happening with APM and what is happening from uh, Secretary Alex Azar and his and wanting to encourage more use of, of alternative payment mechanisms for medical practices and potentially hospitals as well. So many of our MGMA members and others were going to remember when we had to deal with the sustainable growth rate formula every year, which caused a lot of disruption and a lot of uncertainty in the Medicare payment system. The law that repealed the sustainable growth rate formula, the acronym is known as MACRA, And that law created a new quality payment program in Medicare. The idea, as you rightly said, that the government wants to move away from paying just on volume and move toward paying for value. They want higher quality and lower cost from physicians and other providers within the Medicare program. So there are two pathways that the law, again, MACRA, that replaced the SGR created. One is the MIPS program, the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, which is more like a bonus program, and I'll talk a little bit about that as well. But the other is the concept of alternative payment models. And really, when we were negotiating MACRA and trying to get rid of the SGR, the real goal was to try to find and identify alternative payment models that would be clinically relevant potentially geographically relevant because all healthcare is local, 
And there was a lot of optimism about the opportunity to do something that is a little bit more sophisticated and tailored and clinically relevant than just a reporting program, which we've had experience with over the years. We've had other quality reporting programs in Medicare, like with acronyms like PQRS and PQRI and PVRP. So we have tons of acronyms. But the bottom line is where, we, where everybody really wants to go is to get into more customized alternative payment models. Unfortunately, we just haven't seen too many of those. Right now, there are less than 10 that are active and only a fraction of our members are actually participating in them. So one of the things that we expect this year is for CMS and HHS to push out more alternative payment models, but also emphasize that they want medical groups and hospitals and other other participants in the Medicare program to take more risk. And that's an area of controversy. In some ways, they want to mandate that risk on, on physician practices. MGMA opposes mandatory alternative payment models, but we are actually very supportive of voluntary opportunities for our members to participate in these. So I think one of the areas of, of tension this year could be, is HHS going to issue a number of new mandatory models that maybe don't fit the needs of our members? Or are they going to offer a menu of voluntary options that would be better suited for our members and allow them the ability to select things that uh, make sense for their practice? Good point. I think the issue is wait and see, but also pay attention to information that government affairs sends out. Because I think there, for certain practices, these alternative payment models make very good sense and maybe not for others. And you have to make exactly. Let's yeah, we, we certainly don't want to force practices into something that doesn't make sense for them. So that's, that's going to be an advocacy issue. And we'll definitely, as you said, we're going to be keeping everybody up to date on any new proposals. Yeah. And actually, on the same, almost the same topic, which is regulatory burden, I know President Trump has, for the first two years of his administration, placed significant effort on trying to reduce regula- regulatory burden on all industries. So. Uh, is any of this actually trickling down into healthcare? Yeah, it, you know, it's one of the things that we focused a lot on last year, and so did uh, the Medicare program, CMS, and the Health and Human Services Department, and, and it has definitely been a theme. Unfortunately, you know, 88% of our members who were polled last year reported an increase over the last 12 months in regulatory burden on their practice. That's not surprising to me. It's something that while we're paying a lot of attention to, and we spent a lot of time last year, um, we spent a lot of time submitting ideas on how to reduce the regulatory burden, but there weren't a significant number of proposals back that actually completed that full circle. So one of the things we're looking for in 2019 is for the administration to take up the number of issues that MGMA and other organizations suggested on how we can reduce the regulatory burden on physician practices and actually reduce the burden. You know, they have different kinds of slogans. For example, um, CMS has a patients over paperwork initiative, and we applaud the initiative. But now I think 2019, we need to see actual fruit from the labor of sitting down, having these meetings, submitting multiple responses to requests for information. So we're optimistic that 2019 will indeed be a year where we can significantly reduce the regulatory burden on physician practices. Yeah, well, maybe we should talk for a few seconds about maybe the most onerous regulatory burden for many practices, which is the Stark Law. Uh, is anything going to happen there? 
Yeah, we're actually expecting, it's a, it's a perfect example of kind of where we are in this interim period. So last year, MGMA, uh, we, we responded to a lengthy set of questions and a request for information from the government. And we outlined how the Stark Law is impeding certain delivery of care and, in fact, impeding the very models that the government wants us to, to move into, these alternative payment models that I mentioned. A lot of the complex financial arrangements that occur when you set up a financial arrangement between a medical practice, a hospital, potentially even insurers and Medicare Advantage plans, those financial relationships sometimes are impeded by more antiquated fraud and abuse laws that were put in place more for a fee-for-service environment. So we had a number of suggestions. You can go on our website, click on the advocacy button. You can read our statements and letters, and you can see our RFI response, the request for information response to the Stark Law proposals. But we're getting very strong indication that an actual proposed regulation will come out anytime in the next several weeks. And so we're looking forward to that. And we're very hopeful that uh, the government has uh, has taken into account our comments and will adopt some of our, our proposals to fix this problem. You know, let's, instead of being just quite so projective into what's going to happen later this year, in the last week, I've observed on the news discussion of potential legislation that's going to affect two different topics that may affect our members. One has to do with so-called surprise medical bills, which is uh, oftentimes bills that come from physicians or hospitals for non-participating provider coverage, or that bills come in from uh, second and third providers who assisted or participated in a surgical procedure that the patient didn't expect. What is occurring potentially in this new proposed legislation on surprise medical bills? Yeah, that's a great point, Dave. And there is definitely, if there is one healthcare issue that I could say we expect to see legislative movement in a bipartisan way, it's on this issue of surprise billing. There have been a number of stories in the newspapers, and it's usually someone, you know, maybe they get in like a bicycle accident or something, and they end up in the emergency room, potentially an out-of-network situation, or maybe the, the emergency physician that is treating them in the emergency room um, is at a network, and then they get tens of thousands of dollars worth of bills, and that's showing up in, in the newspaper and has, has garnered a lot of attention. This is a very you know, complicated issue, but one of the things that MGMA, we recently just uh, sent a letter to the government outlining a set of kind of guideposts that we think would be useful as the government addresses these issues. I mean, the most important thing is that we don't want patients to be stuck with outrageous bills in emergency situations. We also don't want to encourage situations where patients can just go to the emergency room as opposed to their primary care physician and not understand the, the important financial consequences of using an inpatient setting as opposed to trying to receive a higher quality, lower cost care outside of the hospital setting. But for the most part, the focus is on more emergency situations and protecting patients from outrageous bills in those situations. And we're very much supportive. The one thing we have to be a little careful of is that we don't want a situation where our members are subject to contractual terms that they never agreed to. Some of the proposals out there said are, are potentially would place a physician practicing in the hospital in network in certain situations where they do not have a contract and they potentially could receive the lower payment 
that they might have that might be subject to the contract, but not receive any of the contractual protections that a contract uh, might have to help with some of the business elements of um, the relationship between the hospital and the physician. So we're watching it very carefully. We're trying to protect patients, but we're also just seeking to ensure that that patients are are, are not stuck with these high bills, while at the same time there's a there's a fair and equitable treatment of physician reimbursement in these situations. You know, let me address another similar topic that came up very, you know, in the president's State of the Union message, which had to do with drug prices. And I know there's potential for bipartisan legislation, and there's also possibility for executive action in this area. What do you think could be happening as far as drug prices? And even though that may have only an indirect impact on our members, it's a critical element in the healthcare costs that patients pay, and as well as insurance companies and Medicare. Yeah, it's it's a really important issue, especially in the context of value-based care. Uh, physicians and medical practices are being held for the tests that they refer to, even if they're outside the practice, the drugs that they're prescribing. Because of this look at total cost of care, is very important to moving away from this volume-based system and moving toward more of this system that rewards high quality and lower value. So in doing so, you know, these high cost drugs become an issue if a, if a physician is, is merely trying to provide the, the right clinical treatment for a patient, but um, they're also being held accountable for these very high cost drugs that they're prescribing. So it's, it's a problem across the board in our healthcare system. We have to balance the need to, to have research and innovation in our, in our pharmaceutical industry. We also need to protect patients from what are sometimes, you know, could be as high as six-figure drug prices in this day and age. Mm-hmm. The one thing I'd point out that we pay a lot of attention to is that physician-administered drugs under the Part B Medicare program oftentimes find themselves on the table for these type of debates, and those margins are very thin. One of the things that MGMA wants to continue to encourage is the ability for a medical practice, let's say an oncology practice, for example, to deliver oncology and physician-administered drugs in the office as opposed to forcing patients to have to go to an inpatient setting to receive those treatments. And so we want to make sure that the payments for Part B drugs that are physician-administered are treated fairly in this debate, and that's where we're going to focus. Oftentimes, we know that in-office care is not only more reasonably priced because you're not adding facility fees, but oftentimes it actually has improved quality and continuity of service. So that makes absolutely. Let's talk, since we're talking a little bit about drug payments for practices, let's get a bigger picture. What is happening on payments for for doctors in general, uh, especially under the merit-based incentive payment system? For many practices, they're seeing either static payments or perhaps even a decrease. So what is happening? Yeah, that's an important issue, and we've already had a little hiccup already this year where some incorrect payments were going out, and so we were in touch with uh, with CMS. It's, it's something that in our advocacy efforts, we focus on a great deal at the beginning of the year when all these new policies are implemented. Unfortunately, a lot of our members are now going to have to send some money back that they were paid uh, under the, the MIPS program that uh, was paid in error. So setting that aside... 2019 is a pretty important year because the positive and negative payment adjustment that can occur in the the MIPS program is is now 7%. So physicians in the MIPS program could be subject to a 7% bonus or a penalty depending on 
the quality of data that they're reporting to the government. The MIPS program is comprised of several components. One of them is quality, but cost is also a component of the MIPS program as well. And uh, the formulate, um, the cost component is, is going to be 15% of the MIPS score this year. So physicians are going to be held accountable for total cost of care in the MIPS program, as well as the quality of care that they deliver based on uh, the measures they select. And so whereas initially in the MIPS program, uh, the bonuses and, and penalties were relatively small, maybe 1% or 2%, the stakes are definitely getting higher now that it's 7% in 2019. And so the actions of our, of our, our members and medical practices across the country who are in Medicare what you do in 2019 will affect your payment adjustment two years from now, so in 2021. So um, it's very important that everybody is, is very much up to speed on the, the requirements. Uh, you can go to our website. We have lots of good resources on what you need to do in 2019, and this will hopefully offer you an opportunity for up to a 7% bonus in 2021. Well, you know, part of this bonus comes under the, the so-called meaningful use uh, aspects uh, just as an aside, I recognize this year, 2019, is the 10th anniversary of the High Tech Act, which actually <laughs> initiated the concept of paying physicians and paying uh, other hospitals for meeting certain criteria for the information systems, especially data interoperability and exchanging data between entities. Uh, what's happening here, because that's obviously a key part of payment under MIPS. Yeah, it's really important. And so the, the government this year, they did increase the bar a little bit for EHR certification for medical practices. And so that is a component of MIPS. In order to score the highest you, you can in MIPS, you have to have certified EHR technology, which requires certain functionality, in, including elements of interoperability. Unfortunately, you know, interoperability we're not quite there yet on interoperability. And um, one of the things that we're hopeful for is more proposals with respect to interoperability in 2019 that can really deal with it. The ability to transfer clinical information back and forth from EHRs back from the hospital to the medical practice, as well as, you know, from one part of the country to the other. So we, we're not faxing and, you know, we're trying to eliminate paper in our healthcare system and, get, and do away with some of the inefficiencies. Unfortunately, this has been an issue for the last decade, and we really haven't cracked it. And one, one last thing I would just mention, Dave, is we did a survey on regulatory burdens of, of MGMA members last year, and interoperability shot up from fifth or sixth the year prior to second or third in, in, uh, in 2018. So people are really focused on it, and they're understanding that there are limitations on the ability to transfer this information that's critical to taking care of patients in a modern world. So we're very hopeful and we're going to be working very hard at MGMA to uh, encourage the government to implement policies to create a better interoperable healthcare uh, system in our country. Okay. As important as it is to exchange data with other healthcare entities, uh, you know, there's another element of this, and that is cybersecurity, where there are a lot of bad guys out there trying to get your data who don't deserve it. How do you, what, what's happening in cybersecurity from a federal and regulatory perspective? Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. And I don't have to tell our, our members, 
that HIPAA continues to be one of the more complex and potentially onerous regulations that they need to comply with on a regular basis. You know, if, if for example, uh, the information in an EHR or on a laptop or in other transmissions is somehow leaked, that can become a rather significant HIPAA violation. And one of the things that we are reminding members of this year in 2019 is that we do expect HHS's HIPAA enforcement team to ramp up audits and fines. So we're encouraging medical practices to protect both their data and also protect their business continuity by completing a comprehensive risk adjustment. And you can get more information on the MGMA website on how to protect your practice against cybersecurity concerns and any type of HIPAA violations that might uh, go along with those concerns. I know Health and Human Services has some other initiatives that are looking at more specifically what is happening in hospitals and facility fee payments for outpatient care. Uh, There's a lot of discussion of site of service payment differentials uh, and potentially changing how facilities are being paid. What is happening there? Yeah, and so this has been something that there's been a lot of scrutiny on in the last several years. Uh, It mostly deals with the outpatient department of a hospital and the treatment of payment in those hospital outpatient departments. Some of these hospital outpatient departments have what's what's called um, provider-based status, and they may operate outside of the campus even of a hospital. But in doing so, in certain situations, the combined payment for the professional fee of the physician and the facility fee that goes back to the hospital is higher than that of the payment for the Medicare Part B payment that a physician practice would receive. So one of the things that there's a lot of focus on is to make sure that for services that are identical from a quality standpoint, you know, we want to make sure we, we prevent any unintended consequences from any payment um, policies, but uh, to, to make sure that if something is done in a physician office, that the payment is the same as if it's done in an outpatient department of a hospital, especially those that are off campus or operating more or less as a, as a medical practice that's affiliated with the hospital. It's a, it's a tricky issue, and it's an important issue for MGMA that we want to make sure there are not disincentives for certain sites of service. On the other hand, hospitals also provide stability and a safety net for communities, and sometimes they're the provider of last resort. And so while payments should likely be equalized, we also can't forget that we need to make sure that hospitals are compensated for uncompensated care um, that they, they might be providing in a community. So balancing out that equalization of payments across sites of service with the needs of uh, potentially some of these additional uh, services that a hospital w- will provide, that's kind of where the debate and the, the policy focus is hinging. Let's just address one more topic, I think, and that is, uh, again, attention for legislation. You mentioned earlier that 2019 is the precursor to an election year. So I expect we're going to be hearing, especially from the Democratic side, of uh, new proposals for changing how Medicare functions. And I'm hearing a lot of talk on Medicare for all. Uh, what are you hearing closer to the Capitol? Yeah, I, it's it's interesting because we're hearing, a, as you said, it's in the context of the election. Um, you know, the Democratic primary for the presidency is going to be coming up uh, later. And um, the issue of repeal and replace 
is, is out. We don't hear much about repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act. Instead, um, especially on the Democratic side, we're hearing the concept of Medicare for all. And oftentimes when there are primaries and, we're, you know, the, the early stages of an election, the slate of candidates will um, either on the, let's say on the Republican side, they'll move to the right and be more conservative, or on the Democratic side, they'll move to the left and be more on the liberal side from a policy standpoint. And so this whole, this notion of Medicare for all has certainly caught the attention of a number of, uh, of the more liberal side of the Democratic Party. I think from a policy standpoint, we don't expect any legislation on this this year, but it's going to start a conversation that you know, it, it, it's a conversation that this country is likely going to need to have going forward for the next decade because we have some incredible deficits. You know, our annual federal, federal budget deficit is now $1 trillion. And in the not too distant future, the federal deficit is projected to reach 100% of GDP. And a huge part of that is healthcare costs. So whether you're for or against the concept of Medicare for all, the concept of you know, that we need to have a more efficient, less costly healthcare system in our country so we don't run these high budget deficits um, is definitely going to be an issue. I mean, I'll just say the Medicare Hospital Trust Fund, it's, it's projected to be insolvent in 2026. And so these conversations are going to be, be had and they're going to be forced up, upon us from a policy standpoint. And so MGMA will, as always, advocate for, you know, our members and we'll be developing policy to make sure that we balance out the needs to be fiscally responsible with the needs to make sure that we have, you know, the appropriate reimbursement, the appropriate policies, and to make sure medical practice is a, you know, a viable and important part of our healthcare delivery system. I really want to thank you for the opportunity to talk today because I thought it fascinating how we started this, our discussion looking specifically on some of the short-term things that practices can do. And then ending with a discussion of Medicare for All that may or may not ever happen, but if it does happen, it's not going to affect us for years. But so we've had short-term and long-term concepts to discussion, all of which come under this aspect of regulation and legislation. So very good comments. I really appreciate your time. Do you want to give any last comments and, and also tell our listeners where can they go for more information if they have questions? And thank you so much, Dave, for having me on the, the podcast. We have great resources. You can go to mgma.com and click on the advocacy button and you can see resources for programs like the MIPS program and learn what alternative payment models might be available to your practice. Um, we also have some, some interesting new opportunities within the member communities within MGMA. We have uh, an expert-moderated forum called GovChat. So you just go on and you can look at the list of, of opportunities to participate in, in different um, forums within our member community on, at MGMA.com. And we have an expert-moderated forum that we in the Government Affairs Department, we answer member questions, members share different opportunities for complying with regulations and maximizing, you know, payment opportunities under programs like MIPS. And so, you know, the last thing I'll say is we have a weekly newsletter coming out of, of the Government Affairs Department. Every Wednesday, we have the Washington Connection newsletter. So those are three great ways for practices to end members to, to engage with MGMA and their peers to share best practices, share ideas, and to uh, stay on top of these important issues affecting medical practices. Yeah. And I know they can call you too. 
That's true. We have eight people here in Washington, and, and they're very knowledgeable. And you can go to the website. We have our um, our 800 number on the website, and uh, just hit the uh, Government Affairs extension, and you will be uh, routed right into Washington, and we're happy to help you. Anders, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Outstanding information. Thanks, Dave.